0: And as we settle in, we're going to go ahead, if you have your Bibles, you can open them uh, to Hebrews chapter 8, where today uh, we're going to kick off part three uh, of our four-part series through Hebrews. Uh, this, This part is entitled, as you see on the screen, Jesus, our great high priest. So if you've been with us uh, throughout our time in this book, what we've been doing is we've been building upon the arguments that have been made by the writer to a group of people, actually a group of Jewish Christians, who, who are really wrestling with, and being tempted uh, to uh, return uh, to the tenets of Judaism. You see, what's happened is as they've begun to follow Jesus, uh, man, persecution and hardship and hostility has uh, begun to uh, come upon them. And so they're really wrestling with, man, what do we get ourselves involved in? And should we just turn back to what we know? But you see, the writer of this letter in response to this threat argues that instead of turning from Christ in the hopes that what they once knew will bring hope and peace, what they should do instead is they should run to Jesus in the midst of it all. Because guess what? Jesus is better. And we're going to see that in our time again today. Really, I would argue that each and every week as we stand up here to preach the Word of God, we want to proclaim to you that Jesus is better regardless of your situation, regardless of where you find yourself walking in this room today. Uh, no matter how much sleep you got last night, what your weekend looked like, or what your Monday's about to be, Jesus is greater. So that's what we're going to continue to delve into. And so uh, just a quick recap for those of you maybe you haven't uh been here through this series uh part one of hebrews we looked at that reality jesus is great that's what the the series was titled and what we did is we dove into the supremacy of christ as being greater than all who came before all and all who will come after and what we found is that he is great because he is the one that brings a rest that no one else could bring This led us to part two of Hebrews, which in light of the greatness of Jesus, we see that that leads for the follower of Jesus to have confidence in Christ. We saw that Jesus is an entirely different kind of priest that not only gives us life, but produces in us mature faith as we walk in obedience to his word. And so it's from this confidence that we move into part three where we're going to look further into why Jesus is our great high priest above all other high priests. We're going to see what makes Him great and what this means for the life of every disciple. The way the writer does it, does that in chapter A, where we're going to look at today is he's going to present how Jesus is the substance while everything else that represents the role and function of the Old Testament priesthood was but a shadow. And then we're going to see how this new covenant that Jesus brings that was promised all the way back in Jeremiah 31, we're going to see how it impacts every part of our lives. And so let's begin by looking at how Jesus is our great high priest, greater than all other priests. By reading Hebrews 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. This is a bit of text, but just stick with me. It says this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for, the pre, for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he, being Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Verse 5, they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. to look for a second. Okay, so something that we do as a family at dinner time from 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 time to time is we pull out these question cards. So it's a little card and we'll pass them around the table. And as we're eating, everyone uh, will get a chance to read their card and ask their question. And then we go around the table and just get answers. And so we did this last week. And as we uh, were doing this, uh, sometimes the conversation just... Goes off the rails, and uh, we start we, we just start talking about random stuff. It's something I like to bring up in light of these conversation cards. Is would you rather? Right? You ever played Would You Rather? Uh, or maybe as a, a, a way to learn one another better, are you this or are you this? Do you prefer this or that? And so this week I said, hey, would you rather have little tiny baby hands and really big feet or uh, really big hands and tiny baby feet? And our kids just lost it and you know we debated on whether or not one was better than the other and, and we moved on. Now the reason I say that is because I want to ask you a question to kind of start our time as we jump in To Hebrews chapter 8. But before we do this, as you answer, I want to say there is no shame here, okay? No condemnation in Christ Jesus. Uh, And so if you are, whether you are one or the other, it is okay, alright? Unless you're a 49ers fan and then you gotta, you gotta go. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Uh, Maybe. No. uh, (laughs) So the question I want to ask is this Are you A listener or a talker? So, so if you're, if you would consider, if you had to make the choice, like in life, man, I, my tendency, or really kind of the way I lean is maybe, are are you more of a talker? You, you process verbally. Raise your hand. Don't be a liar either, okay? Like, I know most of you, okay? So how many of you, so we got the talkers, how many of you say you're a listener? You're a little more quiet by nature? All right. Hey, 50-50, okay? Well, I would argue it's probably 40, 51-49 maybe, right? The other thing I notice is that the talkers raise their hands really high. <laughs> the listeners are just like, nah. I don't want the talkers to talk to me, so I'm not going to, no. <laughs> so we're all on one camp or the other probably. It might be 50-50 from time to time, or maybe that's just truly you. Like, I like to listen and I like to talk. But you see, in our house, and I'm going to try to talk in code here, in our house, we have one talker that talks above them all. And in my house, we like to talk. If you know, you know. And there are many moments in the midst of the many words that I find myself wondering, can we please just get to the point? I don't need to know every detail about everything and how everything points to every rabbit that you chase during the story. I love you, I love you, I love you, but what is the point of the story? And the reality is the point is usually vague and rambling because they've even lost interest or direction with the story. You see, at the beginning of chapter 8, the writer of Hebrews finally gets to the point. And and while we can laugh at all that, I believe that it is vital. I'm not saying that everything that the writer wrote previously should just be discounted. He should have gotten to the point. No, actually, I think it was very intentional because I believe that uh, it was the Spirit of God working through the writer to write this. But but he, the writer finally gets to the point. You see, at the beginning of verse 1, it says, Now the point in what we're saying is this. You see, he began this all the way at the end of chapter 4. At the end of chapter 4, the writer begins to delve into what does it mean for Jesus to be our great high priest. Again, remember I said at the start of our time today, the audience that is reading this letter, they have been tempted, they are being tempted to return to life in the old covenant along with its system of law and its priest-centered sacrifice. And so no wonder the writer takes almost four chapters to work out and begin to delve in and talk about uh, these uh, Melchizedek and, and why Jesus only had to make one sacrifice and not multiple sacrifices. It's very, very important. But what we see here is it's all being tied together. You see, beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, we see the argument summarized in a way that draws us in. But it draws us in and what follows, it draws us to awe in the reality of Christ as our great high priest above all others, as well as worship in light of the fruit that his priestly position brings about. And so let's begin by looking at Jesus as our great high priest. And I wanna, what I want to do is I want to lay out why he is greater than any other priest, Remember, if you don't know, the role of the priest in the Old Covenant was to be a mediator between God and man and man and God. But the problem, as we've seen in Hebrews, and if you look through the Scriptures, we see over and over and over again, is that the priest was insufficient because they too had sin. But Jesus is better. And because Jesus is better, because He was the one without sin, we can draw near. We can have confidence in the face of any and all things. And as the writer says, we don't have to turn back to the elementary principles, be it Judaism or whatever it is. See, that's been the point from the end of chapter 4 until now. But now we get a summarized explanation as to why Jesus is greater. So the writer gets to the point and the point is as follows first. We see in the text that Jesus is a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. That word majesty there is capitalized because it is a term used to to talk about God. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Now, why is this important? Well, the first thing I think that we have to hone in on is that he is seated. The word seated there is used to show the finished reality of Christ's work of redemption. We say this phrase all the time, right? Like the Gospel is that Jesus lived the life you couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve to die. And in doing so, what did Jesus say upon the cross before He breathed this last? He said it's finished. By His perfect sacrifice. And then... He rose in authoritative victory. You see, Christ's seated posture of rest, the other thing that it does, aside from saying, hey, the work is finished, it also points to His greatness in that no other priest ever sat down when in service to God. When every other priest served God, what they, they stood the whole time, because guess what? And it, They never were able to sit Because the work was always incomplete. Because they themselves had sinned. Next, what we see is that Jesus is greater and that He is a minister in the holy places. And then the text says, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. But what the writer argues here is that while all other priests just went through the external motions of ritualistic sacrifice in a temple that was made by man, Jesus came. And we're going to build on this in a moment. He accomplished the job the priest could not. And now, instead of the continual need for sacrifice, which, again, that's the problem with the priesthood, Jesus, in the true tabernacle, which is located in heaven, already offered a single sacrifice that never needs repeating. And now, He carries on His seated service by praying for God's people. You see, the point of Jesus as a different and greater priest, as the great high priest, is then further stressed in verse 4. And it's already been seen previously in this letter where uh, we note that that on earth, Jesus, due to His lineage, He's from the king tribe, not from the priest tribe, would not have had an earthly place to serve as a priest, but instead serves as our great high priest in heaven. And then all of this, as you look at verse 5, is tied together. Where the writer states that everything in the build out that's built out in the old covenant sacrificial system was only a shadow of heavenly things. So everything else, even what God showed Moses on the mountain and commanded him to build was a shadow that only pointed to the need for and the reality of the real thing that was greater than we could ever imagine. I tried to think of just in terms of this, like, what's an analogy of uh, a shadow versus reality, right? And the the best I could come up with is, like, is one analogy in a story. So the first analogy is, you know, that that, uh, the shadow is every other chicken sandwich, but the real thing is Chick-fil-A, right? Like, everybody's like, amen, right? Like, it's the Lord's chicken. Uh, Like... Like that's it. Like every like we would say, like, man, every other chicken sandwich is a is just a shadow of that which is Chick-fil-A. But then as I thought about it, I was reminded of uh just interaction with my son Jude. So he's gotten really into basketball recently. But last summer we went to uh kind of the, the the Harlem Globetrotters. It was kind of his first basketball experience, uh aside from uh watching his cousin dominate. Uh but uh even there he's just kind of all here all there everywhere and so we go to the globe chargers game we're trying to tell them this is going to be awesome like they're gonna it's going to be funny they're going to do a lot of dunks they're going to make crazy shots and and and, uh, you know and so we get there and man they are all our kids are blown away they're like i can't look at that look at what they just did there look at what they just did there And, and the whole time i'm sitting there and i'm like yeah but this is not the real thing I'm looking, I, because I remember going as a kid and for some reason in my mind it was more like the real thing. But, but when I went to this time I was like, this was just a show. And it's rigged. Right? Like they continue extending the clock until they win. They miss, it doesn't matter. They stop it in the middle of the game so this, this woman that's dressed like a granny can come out and do all kinds of just, just jokes and stuff, but our kids are eating it up. And and we get down there like, oh, that's the great, like, I love basketball. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but it's not real. It's not the real thing. So a few weeks back, I got to take Jude and my other nephew, one of my nephews to a game. And before a couple of days before, he's like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, I like the Globetrotters the best, dad. And I'm like, oh, son, it's not the real thing. And So we get to the game and at first he didn't know what to do. But by the end of it, he's yelling, he's screaming, and he's excited. I think it was the next day after the game, I remember he, he was talking, and I think one of his siblings said something about the globe chart. He says, Oh, no, that's not the real thing. That's not the Mavs. That's not Luca. I said, hey, Amen. It's not. You see, he had seen the shadow, but then he experienced the real thing. You see even in those analogies which are probably poor at best, they do no justice to the reality of what this really means for our lives. John Piper said it well regarding the shadow versus substance reality. He preached a sermon on this once, and he stated, he said, "The priests serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. The tabernacle and temple were a shadow. The official priesthood was a shadow. The animal sacrifices were a shadow. The feasts and dietary laws were a shadow." And when Christ came, hear this, the shadow began to fall away. Because Christ Himself is the reality. He is our temple and tabernacle, our focus and place of worship. He is our high priest and mediator and intercessor. He is our atoning sacrifice. He's the real deal. This is why Jesus is greater. The writer doesn't stop. He just keeps going. Verses 6 and 7 we see and begin this, this or the how or the scope of this greatness begins to unfold. The six and seven is we see that, that Jesus has obtained a better ministry, one that is much more excellent. For this new covenant is enacted upon greater promises than the old covenant. You see, the old covenant could not fulfill the promises God made for continual sacrifices. Guess what they did? They only revealed the need for a Savior. As one writer states, the old covenant could only remind people of sin, not fully remove it. Now now one thing I want to note, and you see it in 7, it talks about this reality of uh, if the first covenant uh, could have Fixed it all. It wouldn't need a second. And then in eight, we're going to see uh, this, this talk about a fault. And I want to say this about the law. It was not, the law was not at fault here. The law is what it is a standard set forth by God that reveals that we are the ones at fault. And verse eight is going to lay this out explicitly in just a moment. You see, the law reveals that we are broken at the depths of our hearts. You see, Jesus brings a new covenant enacted on better promises. And so let's look now at verses 8-13 through 13, where we see what these better promises actually are. It says this, beginning in verse 8, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will establish a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Verse 12 For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Alright, so in Hebrews 8, verses 8 through 12, it's actually a quote from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, where God reveals to Jeremiah that he would do what he would do for his people through the person and work of Jesus. And it's here in this text that we see the fruit of Jesus' position and role as our great high priest. So God tells Jeremiah long before Jesus ever comes on the scene that one day he i want to say that again. He, because that, that word there is so key. The reason it's key is because God is the one that will bring this about. Not by our morality. Remember, I just said we're at fault. He says He will establish a new covenant with His people. But what He says is it won't be like the one that He made with Moses and the people of God after delivering from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. Remember, in giving the law, God was setting forth what it was to look like for man to be in relationship with and worship God. But as we see all throughout the Old Testament, as we see in this text, they failed to keep their end of the covenant, which led to them suffering God's judgment over and over and over again. Now, it's not that they didn't try. They did, but they failed. You see, we do the same, do we not? Which is why we we can't disconnect ourselves from the text. Because guess what? We have the same need. A need that only a new covenant can meet. The problem again was not bad commands. The problem is that we have bad hearts. And it's at the heart level where change happens. You see the problem with the old covenant and the sacrificial system was that by and large it was only it only created external means of change and satisfaction rather than internal change that overflowed into outward active obedience. And the same holds true today. You see, the reality, I believe, is this we are really good at pursuing and projecting outward change, are we not? But the problem is this. Outward change does nothing to bring life to the death inside of us. Moralism, while presenting itself as clean and neat, in and of itself is rotting on the inside. That's why Jesus over and over again to the religious leaders, He's always telling them, hey, you're like a whitewashed tomb. The outside, it looks clean, but the inside is full of stench and decay. You're like a cup that on the outside looks clean, but it's in it's filled with just uh, muck and, and, and mud and dirt. You see, we need a change of heart that produces a change in obedience and worship. For obedience alone cannot change the heart. You see, sadly, this is where we usually sit. You see, we project and manipulate self and others so that we can project and manipulate the perception of others. What's even more insane is that we believe the lie that we can do this with God, but we can't. He sees all. He knows all. He exposes all. You see, the good news is that God promised. That God brought about and that God fulfilled the better covenant in Christ. And so in closing, I want to look at four things that God promises beginning in verse 10. Uh, In verse 10, He's going to make two promises. And so it's kind of two-part. But the first thing God says is, I will put the law in their minds and write it upon their hearts. Again, while the Old Covenant presents itself externally, for the law was written on stone, our brokenness and sin revealed that we could not live it out externally. We, as we've already said, needed a new heart, and Christ does just that. The Scripture says that that, that Jesus takes our heart of stone and He gives us a heart of flesh. In Christ, and in Christ alone, we are new creation. He takes the law, Jesus fulfilled the law, and then He writes it on our hearts. You see, Jesus gets past all of our projecting and our manipulation. He exposes our external nakedness for what it is. And He gives us what we truly need. A new heart that lives out obedience because of the freedom that comes through Christ's perfect obedience. Our new heart is no longer a slave to sin, but to righteousness, which leads our lives by God's grace to a sacrificial obedience, not to moralistic enslavement. And so, today I ask: Is that is your heart new? Is your obedience an overflow of the law on your heart, or do you still is is an overflow of God's grace in, in taking your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh? Or do you still find yourself enslaved? Secondly, we see that along with this change of heart, we see a change in relationship. The next part of verse 10 says, For God proclaims that He will be their God and they shall be His people. Well, what this means is that through Christ, God gives Himself to us, but it goes further than that. He takes, uh, he takes us to Himself we draw near, and He draw nears to us. But I still, I don't think it goes far enough because actually, what happens is for everyone who knows salvation in Christ, this is that we are indwelt with the very Spirit of God. We are an indwelt people. Do we live as such? I think along with this, understanding that when God says, they will, I will be their God and they shall be my people, I, I think sometimes we have a disconnect there or a struggle there. Maybe for some of you in the room today, you believe God to be distant and angry, ready to smack you down when you get one step out of line. But God is not distant and angry. For the follower of Jesus... The wrath of God has been placed on the Son. And He is near and proud to call you His child. His own. He looks at you and He says, He he sees the Son He says, Well done. I love you. I'm proud of you. Got you. There's nothing you can do to make me love you any more, and there's nothing you can do to make me love you any less. And that's good news. I think we need to be reminded of that. Next, this new covenant presents us with the good news that those who enter in through Christ will come to know God personally. You see, in the covenant of old, relationship with God was entered into by being part of an ethnicity or a nation. Whereas now, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue can draw near and know God. And so for us, like as we look around, while we are to know God, right? We are to grow in our understanding and knowledge and and the reality of who God is. Really what this leads to, because we know God and have a relationship with God, this should lead us to proclaim to others to know God. For as we know, and because we know Him, we have been commanded to make Him known. And then lastly, and this is really where I kind of want to sit, as we see that this new covenant that is written on the hearts of His people who are His own and who know Him personally. God says, this is what God says, He will be merciful towards their iniquities. And He will, listen, remember their sins no more. I'm going to say that one more time. He will remember their sins no more. This promise takes the old covenant and turns it on its head. You see, the old covenant could never produce this kind of mercy and forgiveness The reason being is that while sacrifices were made because of sin, they, according to one commentator, were never completely forgiven because they were never truly forgotten. All sin in the Old Covenant was covered by the blood of animals, but was waiting for the true forgiveness that only came through the blood of Christ. Now now just think for a minute about the reality of this promise. God says that through the new covenant that Christ brought about, He would be merciful towards our iniquities. Which we I believe we can kind of grasp that. We can understand that if we understand forgiveness. Not only that, but it's his mercy that what draws us to repentance. You see, God goes further than just forgiveness, for he says, He says, I will also remember their sins no more. So God, who forgets nothing, wills Himself to forget our sins forever. I love what it says in Scripture that 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 uh, man our sins are as far as what the east is from the west. But guess what? That's not circular. That's linear. I think maybe for some of you in the room, because you know the Earth's not flat. Uh, we I should all know that. Uh, What we do is we think, when we think about our sin and we think about God's forgiveness for us, we see it circular and we're saying, okay, one day the East is going to meet the West and God's going to say, time to pay up. But that's not the Gospel. No, the Gospel, when He says East is from West, man, it's linear and it's going. It's gone. I think at times all of us live with this mindset that that one day God's going to say no more. I gave you grace until today, but no more. I forgave your sins until today, but no more. But that's not what he does. I saw a church sign one time during Christmas that said, Santa's not the only one making a list and checking it twice. And I was like, that is is anti-gospel. God is not sitting there and saying, Oh, Jeremy, here it is again, and again, oh, you did this four times last week too, you know, Kyle, oh, he, he That's not God. For those in Christ says, I remember your sins no more. Which if you think about that and you truly believe that, man, that may, that should draw us to repent even more uh like, like even more fervently. God doesn't say it's not, okay, one day He's going to say no more. No, actually God said it's finished on that one day. And it is. See, what this means is that the New Covenant brings about our total forgiveness because God not only forgives our sins, He forgets them forever. Now out of all these promises that the New Covenant presents, I believe that this one is the hardest for us to live into and out of. So let me just talk in closing about what I mean live into and live out of. When I talk about live into this promise, we struggle to believe God could be this gracious because we know how broken we are and how great our sin is. Also, we've seen imperfect people show us imperfect forgiveness. And we've taken that stamp and said that must be how God does. We, we've had people or we've been the people. Now I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's just jump in to live out. You see, not only do we struggle to believe the reality of, for, of our forgiveness and God not remembering it, we are really good at withholding forgiveness and or harboring unforgiveness in our hearts. Man, but Jesus warns about this in Matthew. He says, Man, if you don't forgive others, man, I, I, forg- I, I won't forgive you. But we're really good at withholding forgiveness or harboring unforgiveness in our hearts. We, we live by this mantra forgiven, but not forgotten. I'll forgive you, but I'm never going to forget what you've done to me. Let me say this. Boundaries are healthy. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) Sometimes, even in forgiveness and forgetting, you need to create a boundary. That can be healthy. But know why you're creating the boundary. Don't create arbitrary boundaries for no reason. While boundaries are good, this principle of... I'm going to forgive you, but never forget. It, is unbiblical and sinful. It is unbiblical and it is sinful. If a holy God who is perfect can proclaim, because of Christ's redemption, that He both shows mercy, He forgives, and remembers no more, He forgets, shouldn't we, who have received such forgiveness, express the same forgiveness and forgetfulness towards others? I mean, we should. And get, like I, I want to say, like that's not an easy thing in and of ourselves. Actually, you can't do it. It's going to take two things. A whole lot of grace and a whole lot of intentionality. And probably in the midst of that, a whole lot of forgiveness and repentance and owning when you do. Therefore, it is is the good news of Christ as our great High Priest that changes everything. That's why we see at the end of the chapter that this new covenant is already at work making the other obsolete and that other one's just vanishing away. And so when we think about this text, when we sit in the reality of Jesus as our great high priest, as we uh, sit in the, the truth of man, these are the promises that that brings about in this new covenant. What are we to do? How do we respond? And so let me just give you a few ways based on what we just worked through. The first is this. Turn to Jesus as your great high priest. Whether that's the first time or the first time in a long time. Turn to Him. Turn to nothing else. Again, that's the entire argument of Hebrews. I believe that's the entire argument of the Scriptures. It's like, hey, look to Jesus. No one else. And then secondly... Live into and out of the good news of the new covenant that Christ brings, realize the good news of the law that is written on your heart and in your mind. I'll say this one of the ways you realize that is like get in the word. I don't know science well enough to know what it is whenever a plant takes something in, maybe it's osmosis or I don't know, but that's not how we that's not what I'm talking about here because I believe the Bible also states, man you are to you are to man. Think upon the word, you are to man chew on the word, you are to uh, let it uh, you know be on your doorpost to let it be be on your eyelids, like to teach it to your children, guess what like that but like that's the means by which it is written on our hearts by his grace, because guess what he is the word, so get in the word, next, draw near to God, who draws near to you in any and all seasons and circumstances, he is near, turn to him. Rest in the reality of your relationship with God. Know Him. And proclaim to others that they need to know Him. And then lastly, and I want to just press here again, grow in what it means to live into and out of the full reality of your forgiveness that God shows mercy and He remembers no more. I believe that part of that learning is first, man, you've got to learn to forgive yourself. I think by and large, like because we often have a little view of God's grace, man, we beat ourselves up all the time when grace is just right there. Because Satan is a liar and a deceiver and just like he's the worst. Like we, we just allow him to wreak havoc in our own souls and our own identities. We're just stuck in the cyclical pattern of condemnation and guilt instead of saying no. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. No, the the new covenant says, I've enacted a new promise that that I will be merciful towards them and I'll remember their sins no more. And that's as true yesterday as it is today and it will be as true tomorrow as it is right now. (coughs) Learn to forgive yourself. Don't make light of your sin, but don't carry condemnation either. Repent. Receive forgiveness, live freely knowing it's forgotten. But the other part of this is we have to learn to forgive others. I'll say that in two ways. If you're harboring unforgiveness today, you yourself need to begin by repenting for that and then by forgiving. Because I said, if you're doing that, it's unbiblical and sinful. Along with this, if you're harboring unforgiveness due to a wrong or a perceived wrong, I believe you are biblically commanded to respond by seeking reconciliation. You need to seek reconciliation by seeking to forgive, but also at times seeking forgiveness for harboring unforgiveness and not dealing with it. I believe so many of the reasons for delayed reconciliation in a relationship are due to our unforgiveness and or our unwillingness to be quick to engage the issue with the person that we need to forgive or that we need forgiveness from. Lay down your pride, humble yourself, press into it. It's going to be awkward and messy, but guess what? Grace will cover it all, and God will do a work. Today, if you're harboring unforgiveness, deal with it. Don't wait. It will destroy. And you can make light of that, but Cain made light of it. And what happened is he murdered his brother don't make light of it don't allow the enemy a foothold deal with it cuz guess what 95% of it maybe not that a percentage of it doesn't even really matter in the big scheme of things in an eternity guess what you're not going to be like that's not going to be a hang up deal with it now especially in the church So, I'm going to have the team come up, and I just want to invite you to respond today. Maybe today your response is that you need to turn to Jesus for the first time. And if that's so, man, I'd love to talk with you. Um, maybe today you need to turn to Jesus for the first time in a long time. Maybe you've been running elsewhere for comfort and security and, and rest, and you find none. And I want to invite you to turn to Him. Turn to Him. He's big enough. He can handle it. I turn to him. He's not angry with you. The wrath was poured out on his son. Next, I want to invite you to respond in light of those promises. Like, man, is there unbelief in your heart today? Is there unforgiveness in your heart today? Do you sit in the reality of just. <laughs> like oh god i know you can forgive me but you, there's no way you can forget that or uh god i uh you know what does it mean to have like that relationship or what does it mean to uh to to know you that's what it means to be a part of the local church Like get involved in an mc be a part of like you'll like we're like we believe in uh theological discipleship to coach you and and walk with you and then lastly if you're a follower of jesus i want to invite you to share in communion And today as we share in communion, what we're doing is we're remembering this new covenant of Christ's death and resurrection that brings about our rescue in life. And so we don't take this just haphazardly. We take this as a reminder, remember what Jesus has done and what that means for our lives. That He is our great High Priest. That did not put something else in the place for sacrifice, but instead say, no, I'm going to be the sacrifice. Today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you haven't been, you don't know uh, man, the saving work of Christ. Again, I want to invite you to that. May today be that day. But if right now is not it, and you don't know what that means, but you're interested, man, we want to talk. But we would ask that you refrain, not as a way to point you out or to condemn you. Again, we, man, we want you to know the grace of Jesus. But man, we believe that this is costly. This is a costly reminder. But it's also a celebratory reminder. So Jeremy and I will be down here, and we'll present the elements. And once the elements are, after you receive the elements, you can go sit in your seat. And then, we I, I will walk us through partaking. Um, taking. But I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll allow you to respond. We'll sing. God, again, we thank you that you sent your Son, who is our great High Priest. May the reality of that sink in. And as I said earlier, may it draw us to worship deeply, not only with our words, but with our lives. May we stand upon, may we rest in, may we live into and live out of these better promises that came, that only came through your Son. God, I ask, I pray for just everyone here, whatever they're at today, Lord, that they, uh, God, they would be comforted by your word. God, that they would be, uh, uh, they would even be drawn to conviction in areas, that they, that they would uh, be uh, drawn to, to worship and celebration that is only found in you. So we ask that you move now, in Jesus' name.